Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga, Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Hey everybody, Rick here from Fueled by the Outdoors, and I'm here to tell you about a wonderful company, Saddies, custom ammunition and gunworks. Aaron Satterfield and his family have been turning out some awesome game loads lately. Uh, I've been using the Saddies Fatties uh, turkey loads, and I gotta tell you, they stop a bird dead. Chris uh, used a 20 gauge this year, I used the 12, Josh used a 20, and uh, my son actually killed one with a 410 this year with uh, one of the Saddies loads, and my god, do they put the birds down like crazy. Aaron Satterfield and his family have a wide-ranging array of ammunition, custom game loads, predator loads, turkey loads, the Saddies Fatty, and also they do gun work. Please get a hold of them with any questions that you have in terms of your custom ammunition needs. Go to saddiesllc.com. That's S-A-T-T-I-E-S-L-L-C.com and tell them that Rick from Fueled by the Outdoors sent you. shot my Kentucky buck Welcome to Fueled by the Outdoors. I'm your host, Rick Cates, and this episode today is very special. It is one of our panel members from the Mobile Hunters Expo. This is uh, their way of killing and hunting big deer, so I'm going to shut up and let you guys listen. Here you go. All right, everybody. Thank you for joining us for this third uh, seminar here at the Mobile Hunters Expo in Chattanooga, Tennessee. We have Michael Perry here, and uh, very excited to hear his conversation. So y'all kind of gather around, and I'll turn it, turn it over to Michael Perry. Hey, everybody. How y'all doing? <laughs> really glad to see y'all. Really enjoyed this show. Thanks, Christopher and Josh, for asking me to come out. So very nice. Very nice. Hey. Can y'all hear me? Yeah, a little close. But very nice seeing all y'all. We've talked to a bunch of people. Really appreciate all the comments and stuff. Uh, I want to give a, a shout-out or a comment. I had a friend last night that had a stroke at, at 50 years old driving, uh, in shape, outdoorsman, so in the hospital, 
James Chapman. I don't know if y'all, I wrote an article with him and done a, a uh, cover photo for AOM Magazine. He killed a big old deer with a bow, his first Pope and Young. And uh, anyway, he had a stroke last night. I want to just shout out him. Y'all pray for him, think about him. Like I say, he's a younger guy in shape. And uh, we're thinking about you, James Chapman, so you hang in there. So I want to kind of tell y'all a little story about a, a deer born on public land. I'm going to basically say how my thoughts are on public land hunting and learning your area. But you got to kind of realize what a deer on the public land goes through. Say a, a little buck was born with his brother to a year and a half old doe. And before he gets to six months, he watches his brother get killed by a coyote while they're out playing around. And then before he gets to a year and a half, he sees his mama get run over by a car trying to cross the road. Then he picks up with a doe, older doe, following her around, watching how she uses green fields, circling, getting downwind. Sees another doe get killed while he's a year and a half in the food plots. He learns that. At two and a half, he picks up with a three-year-old buck, following him around. And then November, they hear some bunch of rattling stuff going on. And he's like, I don't know. And the three-year-old goes down there aggressive and gets shot. He gets this guy gets shot. So he puts that in his mind. At three years old, he's going around in deer season, smells a doe and heat sit, follows it. He's like, why is this on the ground dragging? You know, normally I wouldn't think a doe be dragging her butt on the ground, but here's something, ducks, get shot in the back, gets, you know, wounded, runs off, puts that into his mind. And then after that, he goes around learning, listening, smelling at night, understanding where all the hunters are, where all the other deer are. And he ends up getting bit by a fly at six years old, dying hemorrhagic disease. Nobody ever kills him. So that happens a lot more than you realize on public land. What they learn, see, smell, and hear to associate people to danger. So that makes that, just put that in your mind how tough that would be. So my thoughts are, as you pick you out a spot on public land, ask people, ask your biologists, find out what type of deer you want to hunt. If you want to kill a 150 or a 120, learn what area that is first that you can do that. Cause you can't do that everywhere, you know, especially in the South, then places that are not pressured, think about them. But it's got to be an area that has the potential to kill what you want to kill. So then make you a plan, understand what you want to do, then learn, pick you out an area that's got rugged territory, that's got a lot of where other people access, say in a two-mile area, and find where you think them deer would go to get away from them people. And then learn all the creek crossings, the upper levels, blowdowns, where does would bed, keep up with the does. Don't pressure any does during the hunting season until after the rut. Keep, let them deer be as relaxed as you can until you're ready to make your hunt or try to hunt them. So use cameras to figure out, get a timing, you know, learn your rut and learn all the food sources. Then go for there and just keep learning that area. Every year, every spring, go on there and learn all you can. Get all that groundwork done. Then summer a little bit, but after that, make your plan slip in to where you want to hunt and make sure you can get there and then hunt don't you know the less pressure the less you know any kind of involvement during the season to me is, is kind of questionable and just always try to have a plan but a lot of my work is always postseason many many miles doing that and just learning your area and, and but it's got to be where a big buck's at so that's uh, basically my theory we can go with questions something else so. 
So Michael just covered a ton of stuff that we're going to break down and kind of get in some Q&As here as well. Number one, Michael, one thing you mentioned is the idea of getting behind the pressure where you're having those deer getting pushed to you from other access points. How do you go about scouting that? How do you go about looking at a map in order to find those kind of areas? Because not every piece of public land has two to three miles between the roads. So how do you analyze where pressure should be coming from and make a decision where a big buck should be pushed to if there's a lot of hunting pressure? Okay, on a, on a basic uh, mandatory map, most of them will show where all your food plots is at and a lot of your access. And 75 to 85% of the hunters are going to use them access roads that surround food plots generally. So look at them. You can look at topo maps and aerials and see some of that. And a lot of things, I'll give up the, the first, say, opening day of bow season or opening day of gun season. You can drive around after daylight and see where the majority of the people are going to park, you know, because everybody's fired up for the opening day. Find out where they're parking at. If it's dirt roads, you can actually see where deer have crossed to get away to go back to get away from them people. So, But anything outside of that and the rougher part, most people, because, you know, where we hunt at, there's very little, you know, thinned and, and uh, clear-cut stuff, so it's a rough blowdowns. You know, find them places where most people ain't going to go to. Them deer are going to migrate to that. Bucks and some of the does will travel because they browse more than a lot of people think. They don't worry about food plots as much most of the time. Browse, acorns, they'll hit them because like somebody's opening a candy store, they're waiting on that because that's candy for them. It's not really living food. Browse is what they're, you know, living off of, so... They'll browse way, you know, a mile or so at night to go to a food plot to look at it or check it. So stay, I always try to stay a mile or so or more from a food plot and people that I think are coming in. So. Now, but you're, you're right about the smaller man areas. It's just you hang toward the thickest stuff. You know, a lot of people are going to use the easy stuff. You hang toward the thicker stuff and the out of the way places. Now, how long did it take you to learn that? hunting pressure something that you can use to work for you instead of against you and maybe talk about hunting back in like especially the 80s and 90s in Alabama again Michael Perry's from Alabama there's a ton of gun hunting pressure we have a very long rifle season so talk about how you kind of learned to use hunting pressure to your advantage and then how that kind of built out where you're going to kind of focus some of your time and efforts you know targeting mature bucks Back in the 80s and stuff, you know, versus now, you would have, sometimes you'd have a thousand people or more lined up at a checking station. So you always had to figure out something to use them people is what we did. Like I say, we'd always kept up either driving around after after daylight or just or just knowing. That takes years. You know, we're still learning, you know, stuff because it changes at times. Sometimes you'll have something happen and changing or, or we'll have somebody truck falling or, you know, trying to keep up with it. You have to change to adjust to them people. But... It's, it's a never-ending process. I've been some of my areas I've been hunting for 10 years and still learning, but I'm still expanding. So just keep adjusting, keep up. You know, sometimes if you're hunting, it's hard to keep up where other people are at. So if you're getting in there hour before daylight, so some people aren't doing that, but just pay attention where you see people at. Document. I document everything as far as if I see stands or other cameras. You know, keep it on my phone, write it in a book. So, but. Now, with the access points, uh, so as y'all have quickly realized, if you don't know about Michael Perry, 
you know, the hunting pressure is a huge aspect to him and also the annual patterns that he uses and that you use in order to build history with deer, build history with travel funnels to be able to go and target specific areas, whether that buck is still using it or another mature buck is going to come through there and be able to kill him the following year. And we're going to talk about, we're going to have Michael talk about the annual patterns here in a moment, but specifically, Michael, when you're talking about trying to find a back way into an area that's going to have a lot of pressure, so say you have a lot of pressure coming from the north, and you know there's a lot of pressure coming from a road that's to the north of you. If there's a road going around the south, or maybe there's not a road going around the south, how do you dictate where you want to put your truck at in order to walk in there knowing that you're going to have all that pressure pushed towards you? What are you analyzing in order to find that area to get around these guys and either walk a lot longer than these guys are going to be willing to walk to circle into a spot or put yourself in a position where you're using all that pressure to get pushed to you? Most of the time I'm putting it where I can use some kind of creek drainage or something to get in between them, you know, basically above creek crossing. But the drainages are usually easier to get a long distance and travel through, you know, so... Sometimes wrong ridges with old logging roads, but you got there's going to be a lot of blowdown stuff that makes it harder. But most of the time, you can hit a drainage and just take off and get between them. Use your you know maps to do that. Talk to us about annual patterns. So anyone that might know about Michael knows he likes to run trail cameras. Michael, talk to us about the annual patterns and how you use that data with trail cameras to figure out where you're going to hunt for next year. And how long have you been doing that and having success doing that specific tactic? All right, before I started using trail cameras, you, you know, you'd always use these hunches. And then I always like hitting drainages, you know, creeks and finding big tracks, some kind of wet, you know, especially after rains. And, uh, and always think, why is that track there? You know, I always stop and look at that track, look around and say, why is that track exactly right there? Then now since I've got cameras to kind of verify, find out, I put cameras in these places, but it, I won't put a camera there unless I know I can get there and, I, and somewhere I would hunt. I don't, I don't really care about inventory, just free range. I want the camera to be like where I'd climb a tree, where I know I can access it without messing the deer up, without crossing trails. If I can walk water, water's the best way to access to be less scent intrusive. So. But sometimes you can't do that. Sometimes they'll walk water and pop over a ridge or side ridge to pop over. But I'm always using that camera for next year's info by, say, putting it out in February. Come in August, check the batteries, pull a card, leave it all the way to February, see what bucks is cruising, when they're cruising, keep them dates documented, keep up with what, how big they are. If it don't show up, pull that camera, go to another one, keep finding fresh places because generally, especially on public land, them, them time frames really mean something. So it's just, you know, it's pretty much year after year within a few days when them bigger boys, because you just don't, I don't get them walking around like it's, you know, like they're going to Walmart, whatever. It's them some guns, as soon as the rut's over with, they're getting their body weights built back up, lay up, move around at night, and it's dark pictures when you get them, very few daytime pictures until they get up for the rut or something. So just by everything I'm doing for the next season, Least intrusive, cameras twice a year if I'm going to check them, and then other than that, just basically ready to hunt them. So. Now, you're not just putting trail cameras in random spots. You're very strategic on where you put trail cameras. Before, we talked about trail camera placement and for high-odd spots and not just putting in random spots in the woods. I would like for you to talk about what is the terrain and habitat like on a lot of the public land that you like to hunt? 
to give listeners and the viewers here and the attendees an idea of the kind of habitat that you deal with in the train, which then dictates how you're able to put trail cameras out in these very specific locations? Uh, everybody that listens to my podcast know creek crossing is one of my main things. Everywhere I hunt has got something to do with some kind of water. Creeks, you know, drainages, swamps. So figuring out where they're crossing at, but tying in other things to where they're crossing at, where it's the, uh, a point, long point, bluff gaps, blowdowns, keeping up where the does would be bedding. Because in wintertime, them does love them long points that's got sage grass or some kind of blowdown stuff where the sun gets to them on the south south southeastern place and where the sun gets up and shines on them and them bucks will know where them places are at so finding a creek crossing tied into some other kind of funnel or pinch point when they're going to check these points looking for does is, is one of the you know key things but i'm always if i hunt specifically on a creek crossing it's generally going to be where i can't that wind is not going to swirl and it's always going to be on the south side of a main doe trail because a buck always going to generally cross below or the downstream side because they can pick up scent from any kind of draft. So they're using that draft or thermal to their advantage. So I'm always on the downstream side. And if it's somewhere where the wind could swirl, I'm up somewhere above that, close to either a big blowdown tied in with a point or a shelf or, or a, a bluff gap or funnel, something that gives them closer to where I could shoot a bow or maybe a gun. So, now, Michael, in a lot of places you hunt, it's a lot more kind of hill country. Compared to Jonathan Moreland, who we just had on, who hunts extremely flat topography, very, very flat areas, just like the floor that we're all standing on now, a lot of places you hunt have a lot more elevation change, maybe not crazy, but much more than what Jonathan was doing. So the creek crossings you're talking about are a little bit more in hill country. With that specifically, how is this topography playing out? Actually, before we even answer that or talk about that, Explain what is a bluff gap, because some people here may not even know what the term bluff gap is. Okay, so a bluff is just going to be a flat wall, inaccessible. Deer can't get up it. You know, say it runs a quarter mile, half mile, mile, whatever. One little gap where they can get up. That gap can be a foot wide, 10 foot, 20 foot. And some of them I've seen where deer and pigs jump six foot to a ledge and jump another six or 12 foot to get on up. It's just, just the smallest thing where they can access just basically like a meeting in the highway where they can get across to go somewhere up to a safe point or a bedding area. Now, with the bluff gaps, the creek crossings, how important in your area when it comes to trail camera locations do you like to put your trail cameras in and around where you have bluff gaps in addition to a creek crossing? To repeat the question, in your area with the bluff gaps and the creek crossings, how important is it for you to find a location to put your trail camera on where you have both of those features, both a bluff gap and a creek crossing down below it? Oh, that's, uh, that's just like anything. The more things in one area, it's just like thermal hubs or what we call crow foots or wagon, field, wagon wheels. The more things that point to something, and then, then you add that to uh, some kind of pinch that helps that, say a gap or, you know, so give us some examples. When you're looking to put trail cameras out and you're, you're soaking them for a full year, again, we just had Jonathan Moreland on. And he was talking about, especially on feed trees, he checks cameras, you know, every six to seven days if he can. You're not doing that. You're, you're letting these cameras soak for the absolute whole season. 
talk to us about what are some of these locations that you really like in your topography, your area of Alabama? Where do you typically like to put a trail camera for your highest odds of, of success of catching a mature buck using that area? For my morning hunts, you know, I'm going to, 90% of the time I'm going to be higher up because most of the places I'm hunting for mature bucks is so rough, so tight that the swirling wind is, is hard to get away with. So I want to be above. So evening hunts, you know, I'm going to get tighter. So it's. But that's uh, just tying that in. And my camera, like I say, I, most of the time I can shoot my camera with a bow. So it's going to be, you know, you got people put them high, low. It's just that specific on want, I want how you want to set it. But most of the time I have the better luck with them about a foot off the ground. So. Now with annual patterns, I want to talk about this 196-inch buck that you've got over here. State record muzzler buck you killed in Alabama on public land. How did annual patterns pay off for targeting that specific deer? I have two cameras in this, this area, two different creek crossings, and he would use both of them in, a, in say, a quarter-mile area. But there was only one time of the year that I got any daylight pictures of him at all, and it was the first week of November for three years in a row. And the first time I waited until November without messing with him, the first day that I was off on the last day of a muzzleloader hunt, November 5th, and caught him, you know, so. Now, typically, how are you using the annual patterns to hunt a spot the following year? Another point is he walked by that camera without getting his picture took that day. So. <laughs> now, again, kind of going back, how, when, when you look at a lot of the mature bucks that you've targeted, um, it, it's not always you're killing the same buck you've had on camera. And I'd love for you to discuss a little bit about this. It's more about just how mature bucks are using that area and where to target them based off the time of the year they're going to be moving the most. Yeah, leaving it, leaving them does long. Like I don't mess with any kind of does during pre early season in my main rut areas. You know, I want them. I want the less pressure. I want the does to be less pressure. So uh, <laughs> I don't want any. Say that one more time. <laughs> I got lost my train of thought. Sorry. You don't always kill the bucks that you had on camera the previous year. You're more so, and I want you to talk about this, you're more so interested in just what areas mature bucks are using and what time of the year they're actually using that spot in order to figure out where you're hunting. Right. Sorry about that. But, yeah, I want to be somewhere where I got multiple, you know, playing odds, just like gambling. I don't want a creek crossing or any kind of funnel during that rut frame. That them, every bit mature buck within three miles is going to come through there checking for does. You I've only killed one big buck that I had on camera that most of the time there's three or four big ones and I've been, they'll come from three, I had one guy, one I killed with a bow I didn't have on camera, but another guy had him on camera, but I had four other bucks that was just as big or bigger using that same cross and checking for does. So it's, I want to be to play the odds. I'm, generally I'm not buck specific when I'm hunting, I'm buck specific groups and big bucks that come through looking for does. A big enough area that's got multiple things that point to a certain, you know, like drawing X's. You got multiple food sources, multiple bedding, all they're going to cross somewhere and try to find that spot where a crossing or a pinch or edge that'll force them by me. Now I want to open up the floor real quick while we're talking about annual patterns and seeing what questions some people may have because this is a very interesting topic. I've always been fascinated with Michael and his success finding areas based off annual patterns with trail camera. Does anyone here have any specific questions on annual patterns and how to 
focus on that in order to have success in areas. You can raise your hand if you got any questions. All right. <laughs> so you were saying that um, you'll hunt uh, these areas when uh, bucks are chasing does. Well, what about earlier in the season? What do, what are you focusing on at that time? Early season, I like finding satellite bucks outside of the areas. You know, I'm looking for big tracks. I'll do some early season, early season scouting before season, looking for individual trees, just like Jonathan. You know, and mainly that's evening hunting because it's so hard to catch them in the mornings. So I'm specifically trying to find a buck coming off of some kind of point, something steep, where he's been crossing the creek, growing some wide oaks, red oaks. So generally, on and if I do a morning hunt, it's going to be like on the same level where they've been accessing oaks going back to bed and then that them hunts I'm only gonna do like one or two days max and I'm moving on to something and we only have say three weeks to use that pattern and it starts flipping the light switch as far as pre-rut stuff so you can kind of change it but mainly the evenings is when I'm doing that and I'm not I'm not staying in places much because it's so easy for them to figure you out so in the morning it's so hard to try to get in there without them knowing you're there because generally they're back to bed so I, I don't play with them in the morning that much unless I think I can get out of there without getting busted but on them rut hunts I'll hunt them crossing uh, every gun day there are they say if they have a four-day gun hunt and I'll set it you know I don't worry about the wind going across because generally I can have them shot but I don't want it to blow toward where they're coming from or so or, or where they're going so Michael, to kind of go off that question, you killed a real big buck with your bow a couple of years ago, a really wide buck uh, during bow season. How did that hunt pay, or play out, and then how did you know or why did you go into that specific area? And I believe it was a creek crossing. Why did you focus on that specific area early in the season to kill that deer? Uh, it's a historical place where I've had a camera. I think that year was – anyway, I think in that tree or that area, I, I, last year – I passed one up that would have been five years in a row I could have killed one or something so but it's it's a tight it's a tight like hub that I'm hunting on the down end down like say wind side where they're crossing a creek by a bluff and going up toward a pine thicket and he was just chasing the doe and just luckily I got him to stop or he just stopped on his own basically but I had four other bucks that was 120 and up crossing the same area. So. Does anyone else have any other questions specifically on the annual patterns and kind of how Michael Perry uses that specifically for targeting areas for mature bucks? All right. So, oh, oh got one right here. As far as the annual patterns go, are you looking for the same weather conditions also or just if the deer was in this spot a year ago, that's where I'm going to be? It's mainly about the dates to me. So I only cameras, I keep up with the dates that them bucks are crossing in the daylight normally and just keeping up them dates. I'm documenting every deer I see year to year and just keeping up with the dates. And just, it's always, because generally the rut to me, I'm not a scientist or anything, it's going to be the same time frame. You know, weather and moon might play with it whether it's at night more than versus the day, but it's generally the same timing. So you have some people I think Jeremy Aaron I've talked about a certain day he want to be somewhere an exact day I won't be there that day but to me like at where I hunt at December 2nd would be the day that's the day I've seen the most chasing the most grunting or the most cruising than, than there is so I'm focusing around that day so 
Also something, uh, Michael, I want you to discuss on, specifically this is something interesting with Alabama. There's some other states similar to this, but Alabama, a lot of our public land, especially management areas, there's very specific time frames you can hunt with firearms. We have a very long firearm season, but a lot of these management areas have two to three days a week or every 10 to 15 days that you can actually hunt with a firearm. And you hunt with a bow, you hunt with a muzzler, and you hunt with a firearm. How does that? How do you take that into consideration when it comes to the hunting pressure, but also how you focus on some of these funnels when you have the right funnel in the right conditions that you have annual history with that you go and target those areas? When it comes to them dates, I don't care what's going on. Hell, I'm hunting with a gun, mold loader, or bow. I'll hunt, bow hunt, but in between them gun hunts. But in them dates, you know, you know, you got people that say are going out west certain dates for the rut. Well, I'm. I kind of schedule some of my vacation on some of them dates, and I'm hunting regardless. I don't care what kind of gun hunt it is because generally now they've extended some of them gun hunts to four days. So I don't really worry about that pressure unless if I stay four days in a place, I'm going to move to I've got enough places or swap mandatory size that I'm changing. I'll give it, but I'm going to give them four days. Don't care about who's hunting or what hunting because the deer don't really care about it when it comes to rut. They're going to do what they got to do if a doe's in heat, so they're still going to be visible. So. Also, on these short hunts, these short windows uh, time frames, how important is access going to these spots if you're hunting these locations two, three, four days in a row? You talked about water being a huge part, but when you're considering a location that you're going to be going into that you have annual history with, how do you go about figuring out the best access route so that when you have the chance to hunt, you can get in there cleanly and get a good opportunity at a whitetail? Yeah, generally these places I always have a tree kind of picked out and uh, say in the spring you can, I can go ahead and rake leaves back where I can get to that spot, say the last 50 yards without, you know, stepping on anything. But I'm always, I don't want to cross a deer trail if there's any way I can get around it. So I don't, if I have to, I try to get or know where it's at and step over, but I'm not going to cross one. I ain't going to come through a bedding area. I'm not going to come through a food source. I want to be able to either wait a creek and go straight up to where I'm, if I'm going to watch a thermal hub up that way or come over the top from the other side where I can watch down on it. So. Now, if anyone here like myself is interested in focusing on targeting areas with annual patterns, how would you recommend someone get started when running trail cameras, finding these areas that they can you know, start focusing on maybe their own public land, whether it's in Alabama or in another state, for me, the people they're attending today, how would they go about starting this season to focus on annual pattern and using the data off their trail cameras for next year? So if you want to start this season, so right before season or during season? If, if they leave today and they are beyond excited to try this, how would they go about doing so? Well, you, you go hit the drainages, walk, looking for big tracks or looking for old rubs. You know, the best rubs I like finding is that the rubs are going in a straight line. Generally, sometimes they're like he's going to a food source or he's going to a bedding area. But the best ones are, to me, when you get to a thermal hub or a crow's foot or a wagon wheel, in these pinched areas, there'll be what rubs that are rubbed on different sides of trees going different directions. Them places are so historical and mean a lot. Put a camera there, a couple cameras in different places than that, and just start just start putting cameras out in anywhere where you see a track or big rubs that's got some kind of do with a funnel or a creek crossing, some kind of edge. Always, I don't like putting them in any kind of open woods, some kind of edge, some kind of elevation change to an edge or to a cutover or, or different pines from hardwood, any kind of transition, any kind of, you know, fresh droppings, big droppings, just, and just start putting them out. And you got to start somewhere, just and keep up with them, document it, 
and do as a big a circle as you can doing it. Now, do you have a trail cam strategy for finding bachelor groups right now in the summertime, right before they shed velvet, and then trying to relocate any of those deer when they actually break up? No. Uh, I, I keep that in the process. That's another thing about postseason scouting is sometimes you find a lot of beds and stuff, and you got to remember that a lot of times you'll have bachelor groups of, to me, a mature buck, especially in the south or where we hunt at. If he's hanging around with another buck, it'll be like one other buck, maybe two, but most of the time he's not hanging with a bunch. So then big bachelor groups of three-year-olds and under, you know, I don't really, you know, don't pay attention. I don't set up any kind of cameras for specifically them. But I always keep in mind when you're looking at the area, the more things you got, because bucks generally like some kind of elevation or hump or something to bet on to see. So when they bust up, they're going to spread out to different places like that. So when you're looking at a topo or something, the more of them places you got that leads to where you're hunting, you know, when they go to looking for does or keeping on them does, you got better odds at more than one buck. So they always, when they bust up, you know, they're going to get on their own areas. But they're going to come up and keep track with them does. Now, on these annual patterns, when you have a, a, you know, a handful of areas that you feel very confident in, and some of us probably have our own annual patterns. Maybe we haven't run the trail cameras, but you've hunted areas that you've continued to have success in year over year, whether you kill a buck there or you see a buck there. How often do you stay fairly mobile, like with a climber or a saddle or something like that, or a lock-on, versus doing pre-hung sets in locations that you know are going to be good at certain times of the year? I'm, I'm always, I'm, I always got the mindset if I see something happening more than once, <laughs> you know, I'm moving. You know, I don't care what I how I'm going to do it. So I'm keeping, you know, these things, you know, all this is incredible and and, and neat. But I'm, to me, you know, and the saddle stuff, that that being that mobile is, you know, I, if younger, if I was younger, yeah, I'd, I'd be all about that because it's so light. But I'm I generally, I've got sticks and, and lock-ons I can move because sometimes I won't, if I got a good thing place, if it's legal, and most of our places you can put a lock on it as long as you're not damaging the tree, I'll get it there ahead of, ahead of the hunt, you know, three months or whatever, get it situated and leave it where I can sneak in there without any kind of noise now. And sometimes I'll stage a climber, just depends on what I'm doing, if it's a long hunt or if it's, or if it's somewhere I gotta get high to, to see something, so I won't get real high from a bottom to see a, a upper foot or upper lower side of a saddle or a crow's foot or thermal hub. So, but to stay in, well, I don't know what kind of system I got or say you have, be able to make your mind up and trust yourself to change or move if you need to. Hey everybody, Rick here from Fueled by the Outdoors and I'm here to tell you about a wonderful company, Saddies, custom ammunition and gun works. Aaron Satterfield and his family have been turning out some awesome game loads lately. Uh, I've been using the Saddies Fatties uh, turkey loads, and i got to tell you, they stop a bird dead. Chris uh, used a 20-gauge this year. I used a 12. Josh used a 20. And uh, my son actually killed one with a 410 this year with uh, one of the Saddies loads. And my God, do they put the birds down like crazy. Aaron Satterfield and his family have a wide-ranging array of ammunition. Custom game loads, predator loads, turkey loads, the Saddies Fatty, and also they do gun work. Please get a hold of them with any questions that you have in terms of your custom ammunition needs. Go to saddiesllc.com. That's S-A-T-T-I-E-S-L-L-C.com and tell them that Rick from Fueled by the Outdoors sent you. We took it all. We brought them to our land. 
An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga, Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. So not only, Michael, have you killed a few world-class deer, you have more trail cam photos of absolutely monster deer than anybody I've ever met. Now, most of us will never see those here. He only shares those photos of very select few people, if any people, but some absolute giant whitetails in Alabama. Have you noticed, is there anything specific about public land in areas that for whatever reason those mature bucks can get the age on them in order to get that big? Have you noticed anything about ruggedness or any kind of area that truly, for whatever reason, it always holds mature bucks and it's something that's potentially is repeatable? He's smiling because he knows there's something there. Why you got to ask these questions? Huh? You got to keep some kind of secrets. Yeah? The more rugged, the more mountain goat stuff they are, the, the bigger bucks like it, and that's all I can say. That's out. So it really comes down to the most rugged areas you can find. And, you know, we've all been in spots like this. And we've all been – I've been on public land in a bunch of states it where – It might be 50 yards from the truck. Maybe elaborate. Give us an example. I always go by – I mean, the overlooked, you know, stuff. They, I've, I've seen where a buck bedded within 50 yards of a dang road and some boulder stuff that was piled up. So, But gun hunting, you can't do it, so – now, is that something that's consistent, as in those bucks, those, I'm talking really big, like the top 1% of those bucks, always seem to be in that kind of habitat for the most part? I can't say always, but generally the ones that, the monster ones I get on camera, it's got something to do with some of the stuff you wouldn't think a buck would be going to. So. And I say all this, Michael mentioned this earlier, y'all might not mention it. He's had to change vehicles a few times uh, because photos, you know, get shared and people know about stuff. So he has always changed vehicles because people follow him around on public land. So it's an interesting dynamic that Michael deals with. But with this, the consistency that you've had finding these deer is what to me blows me away. And I think there's a big takeaway for all of us. And it really comes down to finding extremely rugged habitat. And if you're in flatland, it might just be swamps. I mean, you can talk about this too because you've killed really big deer, not necessarily a mountainous terrain or hilly terrain, but really swampy stuff that people just don't want to go into. Kind of like Jonathan Moreland talked about earlier, killing deer using hip waders to get to the tree because the water is waist deep and they're killing deer in waist deep water. So, I mean, I talk a little bit about that, especially from maybe some of the more like swampy areas and the idea that, you know, you might not have that really steep rugged terrain, but you still have cover and vegetation and water that keeps a lot of people out of areas and that's what those big mature bucks really like to hold up yeah i kind of use the swamp similar to say the thermal hub stuff but swamps in between different humps or different food plots different cutovers but i'm always looking out past you know normal people just look at a small picture you look out past say, a mile or two mile thing and look at what everything else associated with that but, you know, most people are scared of snakes now and forest swamps. Now you got alligators are coming on up. So, so deer get in there and they find, especially bucks, they'll find dry spots, little humps. They get in there and wait for because those travel. When the pressure gets on this one place to hunt, those tend to run them skirting going to different points and different food plots. So them bucks have figured that out and they lay on them little humps waiting for them to come by in the wind, catch them, they'll pick them up and follow them. So, but I love hunting the swamps. I'm not... 
a big fan of going too far in because a lot of times you'll cross too much because they, them big bucks are always zigzagging a different way a lot of times. I've killed some from, say, seven different directions in the same spot because it's just whatever they feel like doing that day. And that's what I want to ask you next is, how do you see the mature bucks traveling in areas with more swampy conditions versus that hill country, more mountainous? And how, how does it differ, but also how is it similar? Generally, when I'm hunting them, it's like I'm kind of chasing the rut, so it's generally more doe associated. So the most luck I've had is, is on the edge of a swamp that's close to doe bedding, and they're just, you know, it's pinched down to three or four different points that's coming. Also, say a mile away, there's two or three other big, huge cutover tracks that's got a bunch of points and stuff that people like walking. So. How important is it for you to know your doe groups and areas, especially if we're talking rut hunting here? How important is it to know where the does like to bed, how the does like to travel, and paying attention to that as well for the annual patterns? Y'all you know, remember podcasts about Wes Moe and uh, little Annie Doe or whatever she was? So I had one on B-side B and Black Warrior that two years in a row I killed a buck off of. I know it was her, same dang trail, same way. But now what happened to her? I didn't see her last year. But anyway, uh, keeping it, I like, the, like I say, you let them does alone early. You know, if you want to doe hunt, try to, if you're buck hunting, I just don't like messing with them. I don't want them pressured. So let them run their normal life. Because that dead gum old doe is one of the hardest suckers to kill, especially bow hunting. Because they learn to circle stuff before they go and just, they, they walk slow, point always. And you know, they got two or three other does with them that's looking. So. Leave them alone, uh, keep up with them, keep up where any kind of different food source, red oak, white oak, water oaks, you know, your green bar patches, different bedding areas, you know, they love a lot of sagey stuff sometimes if you got that, and uh, just keep up with them and leave them alone. But they're more, sometimes, especially when acorns on, they're more, those are being more nomadic. They move around, feed, and lay down, move around, feed, and lay down. So it might take a couple of days to actually pinpoint where they're at. So. so we've covered a lot so far, especially when we're talking about the habitat that these big mature bucks like to stay in, you know, rugged, you know, in hill country, the most rugged stuff you can find, hardest access, swamps, you know, you got to have water and super thick cover. I want to open up the floor again for some more Q&A what questions do you guys have that you'd want to hear Michael talk about or discuss or even a question maybe you thought about after hearing Michael on a podcast, something you'd want to hear him discuss in more detail about? You can raise your hand if you have a question. You've not said the word scrape today. Just wanted to hear what you have to say about that in terms of cameras or patterns or historical data. How do you use scrapes? Most of the time, you know, I don't hurt anybody's feeling or anything. I don't, I don't really pay a, that much attention to them. I know they're there. I've put cameras on them. I've tried a couple tests with different scents and stuff, trying to see if there's any kind of pattern. The only pattern I can kind of figure out is a lot of times whenever I do something like that, if I get a picture of a buck on a scrape, that sucker ain't back. I don't know if he's coming and checking it downwind, so I quit messing with them like that. And, but I know they're in the area, but I would rather do like what I say on them edges. I've just had more luck. I've, I've, I've tried hunting scrapes. I know people have luck with it. If I was going to hunt one, it would be the big community scrape. The more licking branches, the better. 
and tied her to some kind of cover. So, but I just I know they're there, but I just don't mess with them like a lot of people do. So. Awesome question. Who else has a question? All right. Michael, what, what do you want to discuss? I've got some other questions, but I want to see if there's any specific route you want to go. So the one thing I want to discuss more so, and I think we all deal with this, is, again, kind of going back to the hunting pressure aspect. So many people look at hunting pressure as an overall negative. You know, you're trying to find an area with the least amount of hunting pressure. Michael, how do you see the biggest, like the, the, the older mature bucks, maybe not they, they don't have to necessarily have the biggest rack, but the older mature bucks, how do you see them react to hunting pressure? Do they act like most of the other deer and, again, kind of just run when pressure comes, or do you see them hold tight? What have you experienced the mature bucks really doing when there's excess hunting pressure on the landscape? This is me, and, I, and I've, I've had it happen to me a couple times, but just because of several bucks in a bed, just because he smells you at 60 yards, 50 yards, whatever, don't mean he's going to get up and run. They're not going to leave or escape you unless they feel endangered. And that means like you might have to walk from here to there to them, or if they just feel like you're you know, too close. But I've walked by them, I've walked by a doe one time that was laying right here and stopped, and she didn't move until I took a step toward her, and I didn't know she was there, and she blew out so in a cutover. But they're, until they got, they got like a little circle or something, they don't, they're not gonna expose themselves until they're about 99% sure that you're gonna, you know, get too close to them, or and if they do, they're gonna sneak out, and you won't never even know it. So, how do you deal in situations when you're hunting some of these, specifically talking rut funnels here, uh, we're talking bluff gaps, creek crossing, stuff like that? How often do you see some of these bucks coming back on camera versus making maybe very wide loops and being more nomadic, where you only see them very sparsely, whether it's from the stand or on camera? If you're talking about getting them on camera, period, like some of the bucks, like Sap, the monster one, I had him on camera three years, and it was only during a certain time of the year. You know, just, you know I knew it was there somewhere, but just he wouldn't use them trails or edges or whatever until that time looking for a doe or whatever he was doing. When I killed him, he was actually following a, a, a decent size seven point, and he actually had that deer with him all year. So from what camera picture I had during the summer, he was he was actually tricking this buck. Well, I said he was leading that buck until hunting season, but they swapped. <laughs> so, so. What do you think some, or what do you think a lot of, especially if we're talking public land here or high pressure hunting clubs and leased property? What do you think is one of the biggest mistakes a lot of guys make when they're trying to target a mature buck on that high pressure piece of ground? Number one is trust yourself, trust what your plan and patience. Well, we got to elaborate on the patience aspect because I know you're a very patient guy. You will sit in a spot knowing that at any point you could have that 160-plus inch deer come running by, even the great state of Alabama, which is not necessarily known for big deer. So with patience, how does patience but also woodsmanship play a factor? Because it's not just go sit in a random spot in the woods for seven days, but it's also the woodsmanship understanding where you have confidence that there should be a mature buck coming through this area through a certain time and understand that you should sit there and sit it out. Yeah, cameras have really helped stuff like that, say for this monster buck. The year before, I hunted a a four-day gun hunt 
every day, every morning. I didn't hunt to eat, and, and uh, I've seen a couple does and maybe a young buck. And then in February, when I pulled the camera, the very next day after the last hunt, he come through following three does at 10 o'clock in the morning. So, and I'm I'm believing that he did not have a clue that I actually hunted there them days before. He wouldn't have come through there in the daylight. He would have still suspected him. I would have been there. So, trusting your setup that you're not spooking or not intruding and and understanding like say the area that we're hunting that rocky there that that's the question hunting that deer population is so sparse and the doe groups are spread out our does there generally they don't get back together till after season they they're still not like individual groups does and fawns they'll kick the little button bucks off but they'll keep little females with them and so them bucks are always moving checking so it's In addition to patience, is I, I want to talk about woodsmanship with you. I think woodsmanship isn't discussed enough when it comes to the hunting industry. Um, uh, kind of like a lot of the guests we've had on so far today, you know, you can buy any of the nicest equipment, but the nicest equipment is not going to help you kill, you know, that mature buck. A lot of it comes down to woodsmanship and putting yourself in the right position at the right time and doing it 100% right in order to get that opportunity. Talk to us a little bit about your thoughts on woodsmanship and understanding the lay of the land in your area from a scouting but also a hunting standpoint. Well, go with the scouting. You always, when you're scouting, you're scouting. You know, I'm scouting for a place to take this deer or take a big buck. So I'm not going to waste too much time unless I know I can get in there without feeling that I'm bothering them. So I'm going to try to pick a tree. So when I, when I set up and I'm sneaking in, so if I'm using a headlamp, I don't use a headlamp but a certain amount of time. And then when I feel like I'm getting close enough where I want to change, I use a little pin light and keep it on the ground, least intrusive. So. And the tree or whatever I'm getting into, I want some kind of cover backdrop behind me is more important than any kind of other cover, something to break up the back spot. Because look, you know, I'm big as most trees, so I'm not, not going to, you know, stick out too much if I can help it. But um, another thing is controlling your movement is, you know, the phone thing that I think kills a lot of people messing with phones. A buck can see something, if he's pointed that way, so from here to that wall, just me looking, if something moved up high, I said a drone come by, whatever, he's going to see it, and that sucker's going to look at it, you know. So be, keep him still, getting comfortable, be comfortable, and be patient, because it only takes three seconds, you know, tops, because they just pop out of the ground there, and you've got to be, be ready. So if you're tied up doing something or not concentrating, you know, it's going to hurt you. Now, that also comes the discipline, especially on your phone. The, my phone. My phone has cost me a couple huge deer in the past. Uh, play on your phone when it gets slow, gets mid late morning, mid a, a few, a few, and it the phone that to be able to stay off your phone. Bobby Worthington has talked about this before on the podcast about truly like putting your phone down, putting the bottom of your backpack. There should be no reason to look at your phone unless, of course, you know, wife or somebody calls something like that, and if it's emergency, but. The discipline in order to stay focused while in the stain is absolutely critical, and that's a common factor with a lot of these big buck killers. Everybody we've had today is they're able to stay focused at all times when they're on the stand, so at any point they're ready to be able to execute a shot, and they're not distracted by outside features. So, you know, talk a little bit about that because that's something again. It's cost me. It's cost many people. I think cell phones, smartphones have saved more big buck lives than anything else ever produced. That's my thought, but. What's your take on the discipline aspect and staying mentally prepared while you're on the stand throughout the whole hunt itself? 
Yeah, I know it gets, you know, it gets boring. A lot of people get bored, but you've got to think, you know, it's just a few seconds. So any kind of, you know, put that dang phone away. If you've got to do anything, another thing with a setup is I'm always trying to set up parallel where I think the main way they're going to come. And generally, a lot of people don't like this. I'm keeping my back to where I think they're going to come from because it's more cover. So, so they're going to come out even with me generally before I see them and then be able to set up a position where front light, because like I say, that movement thing worries me. If you've got to do anything, if you think you just got to do something, you know, a grunt call after, say, they say when pre-rut starts doing that every now and then, but if you think you've got to be just doing something, or maybe I can believe, but I'm, I'm kind of careful and i got certain ways that I do that, but you just got to remember what the reward is, you know, so, because, I mean, if you, like you say, you've done three times or whatever, is all these the same phone? Because each time I'd have tore that phone up, so. There's no, but anyway, I don't think it, or I've been whooping myself one, but. Yeah, that phone's still in my pocket right now, so no, it's not been torn up yet. Also, you know, when you were talking about this, another thing that's very specific is with Alabama, but a lot of states in the southeast, we have typically very long hunting seasons. It's not like some of the states in the Midwest where they have, you know, those guys might hunt 45 to 60 days in some seasons. You know, you have opportunity in Alabama to hunt from October 1st to February 10th, and you typically do if you've got, you know, another buck tag in your pocket. What is your take on having the mental mental discipline to be able to make it through a long season, especially if you get late into the season and you still have a few buck tags in your pocket. If you need a break, you know, if you've got, you know, if it's grinding, which we, we spend a lot of time, I mean, you know, Jacob knows, you know, me and my wife, whenever we get ready, we'll carry a camper and it's not even, the main place we start at, it's not even that far from the house, but we're, we're on it hard. But if you need a break, you know, you gotta be mentally fresh and, you know, and take care of yourself but if I'm going to take a break, say, on a hunt, I'm not going to do it on a gun hunt or something. I don't care what's going on unless it's tornadoes or lightning. That's two things I'm scared of. With another one's heights, but, you know, I have to do that. But it's them pretty days, the hot, warming just days, I might take that day off. And the crazy weather days, the windy days, the rainy days, you know, more bucks to me I've seen is during them time frames. So, and we're also, like, chasing the ruts. We kind of changing the scenery a little bit helps, you know. So we'll hunt from October to middle of December in one place and then moved to another place and then moved to another place that's kind of breaking the scenery but every now and then on a real real pretty like fishing day sometimes I'll pass them up just for a break. Now we're almost getting to a point to wrapping up so in a, in a second we're going to open up to Q&A and see if anybody has any other questions but before we do when we're talking about um, I, I almost want to ask you about weather but before I ask you about weather and weather fronts and your thoughts there what do you think is, if, if any of us here, anyone listening, anyone here attending, wants to go out and try to focus on, again, having success targeting mature bucks this season, what is like one of the number one or two things that you'd recommend for guys to focus on going into the season in order to try to find that success? Uh, you can't, you know, think out of the box a little bit, like, Sometimes, like you're talking about with hunter pressure stuff, sometimes me and Kathy say, all right, we're not even going to get up at daylight. We'll get up at, say, 7 and go in at 9, hunt to 2 or 3, kind of break it up. Uh, the the if you're Sometimes seeing too many deer is a bad thing, and you want, I want to break that up because most of the time when I kill a big old buck, it's very few deer that I've even seen, if any. So... Uh, 
But that's a tough one, you know. Thinking outside the box, places that, that, that people ain't going to hunt. Don't worry about When people start walking, you're on a hunt. Don't worry about none of that because, like I told a little story about the, how the deer, what they see and learn in their life, a lot of times when you kill a mature buck or some people kill a mature buck, it's because he got pushed by a, a person, dog, or coyote or something. So think about that. And then, But the rougher places, just anything outside the box and just, for a big deer, you gotta change your mindset. If you want, you know, if you want to kill a 120, you can't do it shooting one 100 or 110s. You know, shooting 150s. You know, in Alabama, you might have a rough life hunting. You know, waiting on a 150 or in, in some of the other southern states. You know, Georgia's killed some big ones. You know, Tennessee used to have a state record, but Alabama, there's only to me, you know, especially public land, there's only a few places shooting a 150 that you might have a chance in your lifetime once. You know, lucky if twice. You know. So I'm going to reiterate the question a little bit more because I want to see how much more in the detail and the weeds you could go with this. You, you talked about f focusing, thinking outside of the box, focus on those rugged areas against stuff that guys can do going into this season in order to try to have that success. I'll, I want to ask you, I want to throw this back at you. When you say think outside the box, give me some examples of thinking outside the box. I don't know if this is outside the box. You know, and this wasn't a monster deer I killed, but you know, there's details in the woods with other animals, you know, you're paying attention to. So I was hunting a, a place on the edge of a cutover with a point and some other things coming together. And, you know, if a squirrel gets attacked or chased by a hawk, they do a, just a crazy barking. You know, well, I heard a squirrel going. And most of the time when a squirrel done something like that, it's either letting other squirrels know that a deer is walking through or another squirrel, they're not really mad, but they're just letting know, hey, come the deer through. Well, I heard this squirrel do this a couple of times. And um, I'm not generally a big fan of rattling because I've been busted more by bigger deer rattling because them suckers will figure out a way without you knowing it to get downwind of you. And, you know, I've seen them flag off and not, not blow, just go off. I had one big and blue one time. Then you ever hear that big, deep, you know, single blow? You know, man, you that's it for him. You don't never see him again. But so, and I rattled a little bit, just to kind of a grinding. And the way I was set up, he basically had to come a certain way for me to see him before he could get downwind of him. And sure enough, the second time I'd done it, he comes sneaking around, looking, and I shot him. So always kind of pay attention to things that, that some people might not even you know, see or hear, you know, a bird fly a certain way or something, and you might want to try a little, say, if I'm grunting, most of the time if I'm doing grunting, it's a three three series, just, you know, just turning the head, and maybe a can call before that, but I don't generally just go out there and just start wearing out horns or something. It's all kind of strategic or just trying to something. Well, maybe I heard something and try to get it to come, you know, and if you can see the deer, pay attention to the body language and, and Make sure you're not over, because if you go too far, you know it's uh, you got to kind of pay attention to how they're acting. So. And to finish out that story, you heard that that tree, or you heard that squirrel making that sound. You rattled, and that buck came in. You kill him. There you go. Awesome, guys. Uh, as a point of wrapping up here, I'm uh, going to open the floor one more time. If anybody has any other follow-up questions they want to ask Michael Perry. Yeah. 
<laughs> you see my dad once almost killed a turkey vulture. I wanted to uh, ask you, like, do you have any examples other than that, like, where you've manipulated a deer's movement to kill him? Like, a good deer uh, that you went out of your way and did something maybe a little extra out-of-the-box tactic to manipulate his movements. As far as calling, it's not really monster deer, but I've, I've killed a couple with a bow I had one that was coming out of a pine thicket walking away on a dead walk, and I just seen him quick and just done a meh, and he stopped and turned and was kind of looking, and he started walking again, and I'd done the three series, and he turned and come trotting. He was, was a two-and-a-half-year-old eight-point, but still, he'd come in, I shot him with a bow, but it's sometimes trying something like that, but you got it. Like if, I, if he'd have kept walking, if he would have stopped and looked, and I just kept on doing something more, that would have probably, yeah, he'd probably died old age, so. But that, and... Uh, a couple of times, like, you know, some people are not big on scent stuff, but I like a, like a misting scent certain times of the year if the wind changes using a, just a one, just a light scent. I've killed a couple bucks come up lip curling to have picked that scent up and come up. You know, that's kind of manipulating. They come from somewhere I didn't expect them to. So, but other than anything, other crazy. I've had a couple up rattling a few, but just generally it's like grunting. I get them grunting better than anything. Yeah, we can't. We can't. We're not. We're not supposed to cut anything like that. So if I did, I, you know, I couldn't tell you. But no, I don't. That's a... Yeah, but I can understand. Like, if you could drag a blow down or something around to manipulate you know, something, you know, I've, I've heard of people doing that. So, but you know, that's a, you know, if you can in a certain pinch point, that that works. You know, generally, I'll try to, you know, using them big blow downs for certain ways, positioning bow hunting, especially. To, to get them closer, it, it, may, it helps a lot. So, but as far as moving stuff, I haven't really done it. So. Who else has a question? So when you, when you catch a, a big buck on camera and you start hunting that spot, how often, do you, I mean, how many days would you go hunting that spot before you give up on it if you don't see them? If I tie that, say on camera, I'm trying to tie that in to a certain day that he's daylighting. If it's a week time or any kind of hunt that I can do, then that week time frame that I know he's on camera, I'll spend seven days or whatever during that time frame. You know, because generally, from what I see on cameras, it's, it's only a few days. You know, then they, being that the does are so spread out, he might be going over there with another group for a week. So it's just... I'll spend four or five days, and I have spent seven before on one specific buck in a row because I knew the time frame was right and did not see a single deer, you know, but, but the next week I think I come by and see smaller bucks. But I, generally if I've been find one like that and know that that time frame he's doing it, I'll spend it because it's, I just learned over the years I've doing that is sometimes if you overthink and try to be running and gunning too much, I just just leaving more scent because generally they're only daylight like again like that story they're only daylight in a certain time and you the more stuff you leave moving they'll find that at night generally and then they they're learning you faster than you're learning them so all right any other questions 
All right. Appreciate everybody joining us. Mike Barry, thank you for joining us. And, uh, guys. Thank you all. I really appreciate you. Thank yep. you all for coming out to the show. It's been nice. Yep. And then just a few minutes, we're going to have Jeremy and Daniel from the Do-It-Yourself Hunter YouTube channel. They're going to be down here talking about traveling for whitetails. I promise you, you're not going to want to miss it. We just interviewed Jeremy on the Southern Outdoors and Podcast, and I'm very, very excited to hear what he's got to talk about coming up very, very soon. So make sure you all stick around.